Hello, HVAC on air listeners. We are here today to talk what's new with regs. As always, is Jennifer Butch. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. And we've also invited Don Gillis back with his smooth jazz radio voice. It was just too much. We needed to get you back on the show, Don. Oh, thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Lindsay, and welcome back, Don. In the last episode, we focused on refrigerant activities at the federal level. And, you know, this is traditionally where we've operated, how we've operated. But in this episode, we're going to focus on the recent shift to state activity. Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah, this is uh, somewhat unusual and presents unique challenges, obviously, in a different world right now, and things are changing daily. Yeah, as we discussed last time, there have been court actions related to EPA's authority to regulate HFCs. That combined with the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement led to the formation of a new group called the U.S. Climate Alliance. And this has shifted uh, much of that refrigerant policy. So that's really why we're going to focus on that topic today. Um, this brings, Don, as you mentioned, some logistical challenges and regarding implementation. And just in general, what are some of the challenges we face as we shift to more of a state-by-state -state approach? That's a good question. Well, when California first proposed to adopt the EPA SNAP 20 and 21 and the U.S. Climate Alliance formed, our main objective was to stay up on state-by-state -state regulations. It has been a challenge. Uh, with that said, it was changing quickly. As you know, ideally all states would be on the same page. When we teach in different states, for example, we educate them not only what their state is doing, but what's going on around them. For example, if a contractor has an HVAC license in Kentucky, let's say, he's also licensed in the state of Ohio. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they both have the same mindset when it comes to refrigerant regulations. Now, even if neighboring states do have a similar regulations, timing is something we need to pay attention to, the changing of all the regulations. So this is one of the slides that you're not seeing right now, but the state by state level that gets updated quite often, probably in the three years that I've been here, probably changed that particular slide probably 20, maybe 15 times or so, let's say. A contractor needs to know if he's in Cincinnati and he drives over, let's say, the Ohio River into Kentucky, what can he install and what can't he? We also give links to this information for our technicians, owners, and wholesalers, whoever might be in the room that day. And to my surprise, or maybe not to my surprise, because now I've presented it so many times, is there is a lot of interest there because what you may not know is, and the technicians know, is when it a lot of this doesn't get down to them. Usually it typically starts with the wholesaler who then emphasizes this to the contractor or the owner of the company, if you will. And then depending on the company, how engaged they are with training, uh, it, it, it trickles down, if you will. So we try to stay on top of that. Don, that's got to be, you know, a real struggle for the contractor, especially somebody that's on border of multiple states. So, you know, that's a really good question. How are they getting this information? How do they even find it? And they may not even be aware that things are different in Ohio versus Kentucky, or I'm sure, you know, we'll get into this in other points, but like, for states that are very strict or are getting more strict on these things like California, right? Like folks that are living on those border states that might also work in California, this has got to be really hard for them to stay up to date on this type of information. And so I just was wondering how often, it sounds like frequently you see that in your training classes. Would you say that's fair? 
Very fair. Yeah, it's super challenging right now. In fact, like I said at the last episode, when I first started with this topic three years ago, or we first start, started with it, uh, the slides probably at best were five, if that. And now it's turned into 25. What used to be, we thought, allowed for like a 30-minute conversation is now an hour and 30 minutes because there is a lot of interest. Unfortunately, the history of this, as you know, I was a contractor, a technician for years, typically always starts out with first the manufacturer, the EPA, then the manufacturer, and then the wholesaler, the distributor. And then if you're going to that counter or that distributor every day, you might see it posted, but typically the owner of the company will get information, like when with a change of refrigerants or what have you. So getting it down to the actual person, the end user that's in the field, the technician, sometimes that can be challenging depending on how large the company is. If it's a large company, they're typically doing a little training in-house so they can stay on top of it. So that's why a lot of people come to our educational services programs, for example. That's a good point, listeners. We will link out to the educational services webpage. So if you're interested in looking into specifics that Don provides here for the Emerson Group, we will make sure you have that link so that you can find those classes. All right. So that's a perfect segue into our question of the week from the last episode, which was are there state level requirements that affect me? And as Don has mentioned, you know, this greatly depends on where you live in the U.S. So some states like California or members of the U.S. Climate Alliance are adopting aggressive climate regulations, which include HFC requirements. And then some states like Ohio to date has not proposed any changes. You know, maybe there's some states that fall somewhere in the middle as well that are looking into it, but haven't quite implemented that yet. So and that's why we've got you here Jennifer, <laughs> so that you can go through all of this detailed information with us. Yeah. And so Don mentioned, you know, previous transitions and how they've historically occurred. And one thing I want to point out that makes this transition different is that we're really focused on the global warming potential of the refrigerant this time. And most, if not all of our air conditioning options, especially in the residential sizes and a lot of the commercial sizes in that high pressure space, most of those refrigerants are mildly flammable. And so this is really what's bringing about some of these changes. This characteristic, you know, is very unique. Traditionally, our refrigerants have been what we would refer to as A1 or non-toxic, non-flammable. And so when you transition from one refrigerant to another, there weren't building codes to be updated or there weren't any difference really between the refrigerants other than, you know, maybe some, some system level considerations that had to be taken, like pressure changes and things of that nature. But this is really unique in that we are as an industry shifting from a non-flammable to a flammable and that these building codes are going to be fragmented state by state and even really sometimes location by location, Don. I know you've dealt with this in the past, but... You know, this definitely has to be more challenging. Yeah, it definitely is. And as you said, uh, the, the the thing that comes to mind for me on when it comes to refrigerants, like you said, most everything, the technician, uh, myself included in the field was an A1. The only thing we ever really had to know that changed dramatically for us was, let's say, 410, R410A, for example, the example, and you touched on it, the pressures, we had to be educated on that. Um, there was actually a test outside the EPA for 410A. You had to be certified in that. And, and that's what I'm hoping and I'm sure will happen with these A2Ls. I can't imagine, or the A3s, for example, propane's getting a lot of traction right now on the refrigeration side. So uh, I would only assume we're going to have to have some kind of certification, a special person or technician to be able to handle that stuff and know his whereabouts. Yeah, that's a good point. 
through the refrigerant program and technician certification, you know, we are hoping as an industry that there's some standardized testing or certification required just from a safety perspective to keep everyone in the industry and throughout the whole supply chain safe as they deal with these new refrigerants. Yeah, for sure. Just to back up a little bit on the what you said about earlier from going to state to state, the thing that came to mind right away for me is the real eye opener is my first time going to California and teaching out there. It was a full classroom. They were still selling seats literally until the morning but people were coming up to the counter. So with that said, I had, I think I had approximately 52 uh, technicians yeah. in the room. I, I'd say about 40 of the 52 technicians were in the room were union guys. I was very, very impressed how knowledgeable they were about what was going on with carbon and what have you, obviously, because it's happening in their own state. They are really, really engaged with all natural refrigerants and things. And again, it comes down to education. What is everyone talking about in their area? So, you know, in the Midwest here, like you mentioned, Ohio, it's amazing when you go from state to state how little some people know about it and how others are pretty close to what's going on daily. So uh, very interesting. Are either of you noticing a pattern in how states are adopting things based on region? The coasts are traditionally the more aggressive when it comes to adoption, but the U.S. Climate Alliance, if you look at the map, I mean, it's spread all over the country. So probably just depends more on the direction of the state. You know, obviously California is always a leader mm -hmm. and we have some of the Northeast that I think of when I think of climate policy and being more aggressive. But if you look at the Climate Alliance map, which we can share on right. AC and Heating Connect, yep. you know, it is spread out though. It's not, it's not just focused in one area or another. It's not like we would maybe think about for other initiatives. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I would agree with Jennifer. Washington, Oregon, California, and then as Jennifer mentioned, Northeast, I go to New York quite often. They're engaged also. I want to be fair about this. They've got a lot of things. They're really into natural refrigerants, a lot of CO2 technicians up in that area. And do you find that because things are changing state by state in the Climate Alliance, do you think that in general, the rules that they are implementing are just more aggressive or do you think they're more detailed than they are at the and for listeners, it would be good for you to go back and listen to our previous episode to get some background on this for some context as a whole. Yeah, I think, you know, with the U.S. Climate Alliance, one of their goals is to promote climate policy, which includes the regulation of HFCs. They're worried about the emissions of refrigerants and the global warming potential of those refrigerants. But what the Climate Alliance does very well is they put together a framework states to adopt but what isn't mandated or pushed is uniform timing so as don and i mentioned earlier like the timing of adoption is up to each state so it's not going to occur all at one time like we would see with the federal regulation which you know brings okay. those challenges and each state has be a playbook of items that they can choose from so this refrigerant regulation is really just one of many options they have and so what we've seen so far, though, is that SNAP Rule 20 and 21, which were vacated at the federal level, have been adopted now by several states with different implementation dates, depending on end use, which was consistent with the federal rule when it was initially rolled out. So, you know, California has taken it a step further. They've proposed some GWP or global warming potential limits for new equipment, working through that regulatory process. So it'll be interesting to see if other states, you know, I'm sure they're all watching California at this point. It'll be interesting to see how fast other states might jump onto that same limit 
or if maybe we get a shift back to the federal level somehow, and maybe this becomes a uniform timing. You know, I think as regulators roll out these proposals, it's good for them to understand how this impacts those feet on the street, the people selling, the people doing the business. Sometimes there's a disconnect, I feel like, between regulators and the practical implications of the regulation they just proposed. And so anytime we're able to provide input, these proposals, I think it's a good thing. And I would encourage everyone, no matter what your level is, to do that. So based on what you're saying, Jennifer, it really sounds like timing is the issue more than whether the state-by-state approach is more aggressive or not aggressive compared to the federal level. So from your perspective, Don, when you're talking to the folks in the classroom, you know, what is your suggestion or what is your approach for helping them with these guidelines if they are folks that are on the border or in between states and potentially installing in more than one area? That's a good question. Um, so my approach or our approach is, is education, education, education. I encourage technicians as I did when I was younger or still today, I probably get about four or five trade magazines sent to my house uh, monthly. I think it's important to do that, to keep yourself educated on what's going on. Obviously, you need to know the codes. Again, uh, if you're working on the state of Ohio, the state line of Ohio, and you're you're drifting into Indiana, for example, which I did for years, uh, you need to know your surroundings, what's going on, you're building the codes. But more importantly than any thing is just education on that stay engaged uh, training Uh, on a side note jennifer mentioned it earlier i foresee this eventually whether it's tomorrow or two years from tomorrow this going back to a federal level and uh, when that happens i think life will be a lot easier for all of us that's just my opinion Thank you, Don and Lindsay, for helping us walk through some of the practical aspects of these regulations and things that we need to consider regarding education and just resources. What, you know, what are the best resources? What should we focus on out of where we're at in this industry, whether, you know, we're a manufacturer or a contractor or technician, wherever we fall. We mentioned it a little bit, some of the characteristics that make these new next generation refrigerants unique with the flammability, but next time, that's exactly what we're going to focus on. So our question of the week is, what should I know about these new refrigerants and systems that will use them? And hope you join us. Thank you again, everyone. We're always excited to have you on here, Jennifer. You're so knowledgeable. Thanks, Don, again, for joining us as well. HVAC listeners, you can find us at ac-heatingconnect.com. Make sure to check out this episode, the resources that we've got on this page for different topics that we've talked about. Make sure you check out the previous episodes as well. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Copeland Scroll and leave us a comment, suggestion, anything to help us make this better and more informative for you. We appreciate y'all joining and listening in. So till next time, thanks everyone.